coming down from this sort of macro view, I'm curious about, so we've touched on all sorts of the issues, the issues that we talk about all the time, fuel poverty, energy crisis, quality of building. I'm curious about how your members are investing their money now. So not so much, I mean, in the new build, that's an interesting one, but in terms of uh, trying to meet the crisis, like, Local authorities, housing associations, they've got to invest their money. And this is part of a continuum of conversation we've been having with regard to improving the quality of life for people through the buildings they occupy. Because all of these things are connected in all sorts of ways. And one of the things we've... So quality is incredibly variable in terms of measures taken, application. Like Alex alluded to the solar panels on his friend's house or on the development like he was walking home the other day and he found loads of northwest facing solar panels on the same development which is as you know like preposterous and that's down to problems in terms of uh procurement so the developer knowing what they can get away with and the buyer being inadequate to the challenge like and this is a problem that's facing institutions private renters like uh I mean, private rental institutions as well, increasingly now. Like, what? How are you seeing people approaching investment decisions? I mean, are they coming to you asking questions? Are you offering support to folk? Oh, so, so you'll see two things. To say. Oh, sorry, Karen. Do you want to go? For? Um, I'll I'll kick off from Scotland, Gavin, and then we yeah, sure. time if there's any kind of difference. So, I think there's is mixed so far. Let's that's which is a like super vague and unhelpful answer, but I'll unpack it a little yeah. bit. So. Um, I think there's still there's still continuity in the social sector. I think there's still building, there's still plans in place. I think where they can, uh, landlords are recognise their um, social. You'll go back to that point around kind of social purpose. Um, actually, kind of uh, they recognise their social purpose, they and their responsibility to their communities and look to build. But it's it's not as it was a year ago or two years or certainly three four years mm. ago. Actually, we are seeing landlords give back sites. We are seeing landlords reflect on their development plans. We are seeing a, a shrinking, ultimately, of development plans across it. Now, it's patchy, and I'm not saying that is a comprehensive picture that will be reflected over the next few years. But what we do know is once you start to pull back on development, actually, we're shrinking the size of the sector, and it's always harder to scale up again. And that's ultimately because landlords have got choices. You know, if there's three buckets, you've either got development, You've either got retrofit in the broadest possible sense, not just energy efficiency, or you've got affordability. So you've got three massive challenges you're facing. What do you mm. choose? You might get away with two of them. You're probably going to struggle to manage all. You're going to struggle to keep your development programme, retrofit your existing stock, and keep rents um, frozen or as low as possible. That's It's an impossible challenge. So what do you do? You focus on your existing customers. That's, you know, that's, that's, so you focus on the improving the existing stock and keeping rents affordable. Landlords of a scale, We'll try and continue to work, and I think they will. And I think they'll keep that going for a few years. But where we're going to get to is actually what is the role of the state? How does the state then ensure that? Whose responsibility is it to build these homes? Is it existing tenants or is it the state? And that's, you know, in previous we've had a balance since Scotland. Probably had half the investment in the uh, social building programme come from tenants, half from the government. That's that balance isn't going to be there anymore. We're going to have to see, given the you know, the cost of land, the cost of building materials, labour, it's it, everything. It just costs more. Um, and I think that's, that's and we're still at this messy point. So we're not, we don't know where it's going to go, but unless we see a, 
a kind of radical shift in state support at UK Scottish and Scottish level. <coughs> I think the reality is we're going to see a slowdown in development plans um, and we know the kind of consequences that will have. And I just want to just say very quickly as well, <coughs> on the private rent sector as well, the, the reality is we are likely see we have seen probably over the last few years people leave the private rent sector in Scotland. I think the more we talk about improvements to housing stock, and we want to talk about improvements to stock, that's how could CIH not talk about improvements to housing yeah. stock? That'd be ridiculous. Of course, we want to see homes at the highest possible standard, <coughs> but the reality is that will drive out some landlords. Some of those homes will just remain in the sector because there's housing. It's not banana doesn't die. Yeah. You, you can't eat it. It's, it's going to be there, but. How will they be utilised? Will it be international investors? Will it be repurposed for something else? That's some of the unknowns right now. So we need to find a mechanism for a kind of cleaner and more national mechanism where stock that may be leaving the private sector, what is the role of social landlords to perhaps take that on? We're not adding to stock, but do you know what? At least we're not losing it. Well, so, Gavin, that, so that's a, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Scotland in a nutshell. I don't know if this is different in England, Gavin. And no, I don't think it's massively different. So to... So to very quickly, I think Callum is right that um, when the pressure comes on, uh, the kind of finances of a housing association or a local authority, you, you've got to balance between those you know, those areas, you know, investing in existing stock, service delivery, affordability, building new homes. Um, there is always a risk that building new homes becomes the kind of balancing item, as it were, because you can you can turn it off more easily in some of that other stuff and also it's very very cash hungry the, the, the thing that is really puts pressure on businesses is, is the risk and the cash to, required uh, to develop and that's true of housing association local authorities as well so i think we will you will see a kind of falling off unfortunately and um, in terms of investing in existing homes i'm kind of right you know why would we not want to make the case fair and our members all work for organizations who want to want to do that too i think there's kind of good news and bad news here so i think the good news is that um even only the kind of sort of semi-informed not not technical experts like me understand that actually what some of the most important things you can do to the environmental performance of your building uh, is insulation and air tightness and we know how to do that and almost all landlords are adopting a kind of fabric first approach because they know that's where the big wins are and i think the good news there is that we kind of we know how to do it we know we already know what works what doesn't and we're becoming increasingly aware of some of the kind of unintended consequences as well in terms of ventilation all that kind of stuff so that that's good and people are cracking on with that and they're cracking on with that because what they want to achieve is to say well if we're going to be if these homes are up for refurbing anyway we don't want to come back again in six months' time and then doing kind of eco-refurb as well. We want to be in and out in one hit and do the best job we can. So that's the optimistic side of it. I, I think the more tricky side of it is that even now, I think we know that the technology is improving every year. Some of it is still less well understood. Some of it is difficult to use. Uh, and so <coughs> I, 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 the, the kind of the alternative heating systems, ventilation systems, that side of it, although the heat pump industry is making big strides every day, that's a more mixed picture. Uh, and that, that partly goes back to issues about intelligent procurement, supply chain management, technical expertise in the organisations. And it partly goes back to, I think, a quite understandable concern that if we do this and get this wrong, what we're doing is we're gifting people on low incomes with little additional resource uh, systems that may not work properly for them or may be hard to operate. So that that part of it, 
I think is a little more mixed, but organisations are cracking on. Uh, I was looking at something one of my policy colleagues sent me the other day about uh, uh, one of the largest care and support uh, 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 housing associations that operates uh, broadly across England, but also I think into Scotland as well. Um, they're they've got a plan to get all of their 20,000 homes to EPCC uh, 13 years ahead of the deadline. You know, so there are people who are really cracking on and getting it done. But some of that is the back of the drawer as well, to do with the, the, what, what is your existing stock? What does it look like? How amenable is it to, to, to retrofit? I've, we just moved house. We left. It was beautiful, tiny, very efficient to run, but a Georgian cottage. It's listed, single skin. You can't, you can't do anything to it. You know, it's, it's so small that it's relatively easy to heat. It's got an environmental efficiency quality sort of a paper bag, and that's not going to change, you know. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. No, I think both Callum and, and, and Gavin, that was that was really interesting. And I, I agree, Callum, I think that uh, in terms of the choices that landlords have, so my background, Gavin, is in, in social housing, so I, I always come at the, the, the angle from the, the, the landlord's perspective. And, and I, I totally agree. I think that there is a lot. I, th I think that actually social landlords can be the catalyst for how the rest of us actually heat and retrofit our home. There's a lot of great work being done out there. Um, and I think you're right, Callum. I think I think landlords are now focusing, and I speak to them on a daily basis. I think there is more of a focus on right. We have to really now look at our existing stock. So I think those three buckets. I think I think the new build is is becoming less and less appealing. One of the things um, that I, I think isn't, and I wonder if you agree with me here, because the, the crisis that we face and, and the retrofit that we will do over the coming years will will be really good, but it will take a lot of time. It's what six hundred thousand social landlords, social homes in Scotland, four million in the UK, and, and I think you're right. We will we will get that right and get it right well over time. However, this coming winter, I think one thing that isn't being discussed is we're going to have lots of people on very low incomes, fixed incomes, who who will have to spend a lot on heating their homes. They probably won't be able to. I think there's going to be a big impact on the maintenance budgets of landlords um, next spring when we come out of a, a winter where people have literally not heated their homes. And I think in terms of government funding, I, of course, we have to to, to, to make things as, as, as uh, affordable as possible for consumers, whether they be private or, or social. But I think we, we could face a maintenance budget as a result of people not being able to heat their homes, which is genuinely catastrophic for the industry that, we, that could be into the, the tens of millions of pounds. So that's a statement, more of a question. Apologies, Jeff. Sorry. Well, um, just just before we get into that, like, I mean, uh, and we can get into that, Jeff. Sorry. Uh, like, he's, I mean, is it even going to be feasible? One of the things we're advocating for on the consultancy side of stuff that we're doing with the housing associations we're working with is like thinking in terms of merging your capex and opex. Because under this crisis, under these terms that Duncan just laid out there, it's the same problem. Like, you know, void tenancies cost money in two ways, getting the property right, losing revenue. That suddenly affects the economic sustainability of the entity, whether you're a private landlord or a social landlord, same problem. Fixing up the property so you can guarantee that you don't, you're not in, the, the tenant doesn't have the same sort of energy costs imposed on them by the market and can pay your rent alleviates those two challenges to your economic model and the sustainability of it uh like it's it's all the same thing all of a sudden you you can't separate it in the same way sorry jeff 
Uh, no, I just, I just thinking on what Duncan was saying. It's just something that occurred to me. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, as, I, as I'm sure we all have, about this coming winter and how it's going to affect, in particular, the most vulnerable people in society. We're, we're planning to write about it in a lot of detail in our next issue, like probably every other journalist in the country. Um, but, we, but from a specific Anoraki perspective, obviously, that we have. Um, I just wonder, um, I've been thinking, you know, uh, an overarching indicator like an EPC or whatever, or it's, it's, in this context, it's not necessarily that useful. Um, you know, there's different kinds of energy use in buildings. Um, and while you can't get away from the fact that energy needs to be affordable enough for people to have the amenity for the various uses that they'll need in the building, um, uh, some of the some of the uses are probably more important than others. Um, you know, uh, if you are incapable of heating your building, for instance, to a, to to an acceptable level, it could kill you, right? Um, so, not to say that there, the other uses aren't very important too, and people need to be able to run fridge freezers and ovens and all that kind of stuff as well, of course, too. But uh, it feels to me like there there's maybe an argument to be had for a kind of a way of stress testing buildings to see how long. Like we we uh, when I did my TEDx talk, I um I talked about this uh, this passive house in Colorado, um that uh, during the the cold snap uh, in February 2020, I think it was uh, to, to when when Ted Cruz uh, reverse ferreted over the the border wall from 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 a. Uh, from from uh, from Mexico back to Texas, Texas. Um, he um, um, that 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 cold snap which affected large parts of America. Um, this p- particular passive house, out the external air temperatures outside it were minus twenty eight to minus thirty three for like four days in, in a row, um, and the heating system, the little heating system they had. Uh, stopped working because it relied on water pipes uh, from ex- from outside the building, uh, bringing in and, and heated heated water. Um, but the temperature inside the building didn't drop below four, uh, 14 and a half degrees. Now, you know, so th- th- those that's an extraordinary kind of level of performance. But I just wonder, and we're not going to see maybe those quite hopefully quite those extremes. Um, but if, it feels to me that that's something that that uh, we should be looking to do to stress test buildings against. Will it kill you? You know, if you if you if people are going to be self disconnecting energy, for instance, um, in these kinds of conditions, how ready is the asset? What happens to the asset in in in, in that kind of condition? Um, uh, so, I, uh, and then the other thing I just had, which is an observation, just related to Gavin, to something that you said earlier about um about uh, the need for to pull different kind of policy levers and so on. I think everybody kind of recognizes now more than we've ever had before that there is a need to act. Um, but the thing that really frustrates me, um, I think. You know, uh, we know that we need to decarbonize buildings and to enable affordable energy supply, but but there's but there's so much confusion. There's we're missing a kind of coherency, and I feel that we need a kind of clearly, consistently communicated vision for what needs to happen at a whole society scale. You know, um, and I just wonder. You know, I feel like one of the things that needs to be tackled, and I don't know where this comes from, is a central, consistent, simple uniform kind of messaging so that everybody knows you know when you've got these all these competing interests um uh this cacophony of different voices we need to kind of herd all those cats and find ways to kind of uh to 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 tell everybody what needs to to happen you know is that is that how the hell do we make that happen (laughs) (laughs) it's a good challenge i've got a couple i had a couple of thoughts you were speaking so I, i mean i think you're right about the scale of the challenge this winter um, I'm, I'm certain the work has not been done to 
to understand for every home in the social sector, you know, will it, how is it going to perform under that kind of level of pressure? But we already know that, that most of them weren't performing the, in, in the way that the building you described before. So there's a real there's a real challenge there now, and we know that landlords are doing things like looking at their hardship budgets. Uh, we know that uh, landlords who run community heating systems, are, quite a lot of them are not passing on the fuel increase charges and they're just sucking them up themselves. But that speaks to Cam's point, you know, that, that money's got to come from somewhere and it's probably been taken out of other development programmes or other investment uh, um, programmes elsewhere. Uh, and it, it's going to be it's going to be very, very difficult. And I think Duncan's right as well. And again, I'm not a techie, but I think the dew point is around kind of 15 degrees. You know, people turning off the heating, damp and mould, that's going to get worse. Property deterioration is going to accelerate uh, because if people can't afford to put the heating on, they're not going to put the heating on. And we're going to see a whole load of uh, building issues, health issues, um, risk to life issues in some cases. And it's it looks it looks pretty gloomy and it's hard to it's hard to see a way out of that in the short term. It's it's a, it's a very, very difficult situation. It, in, in terms of your kind of, you know, surely we can find a better, more sensible way of talking about this as a society in a way that everybody understands. I think there's a bit of an 80-20 rule here, isn't there? About, you know, it, 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 are we at risk of letting the best be the enemy of the good? Uh, and I have wondered for quite a long, long time whether or not that means that our understanding of retrofit is slightly kind of under-researched. By, by which I mean, what if we could try to get to a very gross model of what our housing stock looks like and divide it up into kind of broad typologies, possibly aging construction-based, and, and then be able to say, look, basically, we know, right, your house is a, is a Victorian semi. It's probably built a bit like this. It probably forms broadly like this. The five or six most sensible things that you can do are these. And that that improves kind of producer knowledge and consumer knowledge, and we have a much more sensible conversation. All right, it might only get you 80% of the way, and the next 20, yeah, the final bit to get you all the way to a really, really efficient home might be bespoke. But let's 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 take the big wins first. At the moment, as far as I can understand it, if you're not a big landlord. If you're an individual consumer or, an individual or a, a private rented landlord, maybe only, only a handful of properties, every discussion is a bespoke discussion and that's slow and it's cumbersome and the understanding and the knowledge is not there. And yeah, actually, I think we probably, we probably most of the way there to be able to say, well, tell me a bit about your house and I can probably guess the main things that you could do. The EPC is supposed to do that, but it, it quite often, and I don't want to sound disparaging because I don't mean to, but it, you know, it, it change your light bulbs for insulation in the loft. Great, great, but you know, big, good first steps, but they're not going to get us to where we need to be. So, so I don't know. I think it seems to me that there might be just a bit of an R and D exercise here to say, let's get to a national understanding of what we think the key treatments for different classes of property are, and that's what the strategy looks like. Uh, Duncan was nodding all the way through that. I don't know if that's because he it's the, it's so, the worst thing he's ever heard. Or no, this is really interesting because I've been talking with, I hope Terry doesn't doesn't mind, and uh, Dan and Alex know um, uh, our friend Terry. So Terry uh, works for a, a government organisation who, who is talking about developing archetypal-based 
solutions, generic solutions, which will get you there. I think that I think that is so sensible. And and sometimes you you know the technical guys, and I, and I probably include myself, uh, and, and and Jeff definitely is, is one of the technical guys. And sometimes we can overcomplicate things, but I think you need that right. What what's the sixty to eighty percent to get us where we need to be? I kind of think there is something really strong around archetypes. Now we can do that. Sorry. Can I, can I just add that very quickly, though, that there has to be one other thing is we have to stop talking about um, cuddling dogs or pets and doing star jumps, because that's the problem with the news at the moment is that we're talking about stuff which is completely irrelevant to the issue. And it is a complicated issue. And we're trying to or, or some organizations are trying to put across to the public these absolutely ridiculous uh, bits of advice. And I think that's also we have to also know what to, to promote, but also what to to stop talking about. Can I can that I just say so can assume I just, that the dog wants to be cuddled, you know, which isn't always true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I it's very nice, so? but it's just not the right thing to, to put forward. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the terms that the language that's been used, especially around energy efficiency, is really very interesting. Just at the October last year when the first big price hike, there was a, a BBC report came out about vampire devices. Even that term itself is is quite now. What we were talking about was vid, you know sort of um, you know um, TV boxes. Yeah, that standby. Yeah, I mean we're talking negligible stuff here. But even the language was in some way as if there's devices that's causing this. It's not. This is a market macro um, um, issue. And yeah, you can you turn stuff off. You might save a fiver. I don't know. But I think it moves the language onto something that is kind of not as relevant as the fundamental of how do you do, how do you reduce the demand within your home and what's the structure of it? That's an issue where you're talking about uh, it's the reframing of a, a systemic problem to be one of personal responsibility, it's which is exactly. a key feature exactly. of the the social discourse and political discourse since what the the late seventies. Exactly. Um, but I think that leads like one of the things we've not spoken about particularly, and this this is a natural segue, is the issue of procurement. Because like we touched on it before, but like under these circumstances, the only way we're going to begin to ameliorate some of these issues is by guiding procurement adequately. And one of the key themes is the system isn't geared up to deliver it properly. The consumers don't know how to consume properly. The end users, they're flailing around being told by Edwina Curry to tinfoil the backs of the radiators. Like Jesus wept. Like... I mean, is this something that you guys? So, part of the discourse, we've been moving back from the the. So we cost out contractors uh, on the podcast uh, a, a few months ago, and uh, we've sort of resolved that issue because uh, it's not always the contractor. The contractor delivers what they've been asked to deliver, so long as it, you're not in some value engineering paradigm, uh, and they're doing what they're asked to do, and they're often doing very well, and so the the. The procurement people within local authorities, they're the ones without necessarily the expertise to be able to address all of these things. And it's a systemic issue rather than a personal responsibility. Local authorities, they've been cut to the quick. Uh, housing associations, they've not necessarily had the investment in expertise that they've needed because uh, whilst we saw the iceberg in the distance, well, is it really that big? <laughs> we've been kicking that can down the road so i wonder like how are you guys helping your people to address this uh is that even possible well i, I think it is possible I, I, I guess i want to say two things first of all just to, i really want to agree with uh, uh, you dan and alex and duncan there is a there's a 
a strand of the UK public policy and public policy debate, which turns systemic problems into individual behavioural challenges. Uh, and Alex is absolutely right that we should re reject that because it doesn't lead to the. It, it, yeah, it might help at the margin, but it's not going to cause the core problem, and it's a way of dodging responsibility. We should we should be we should be calling it out. Um, it, is there stuff that we can do? Yes, we we try, but some of our job here actually is signposting, you know, yeah. um, because it's about being clear where where our expertise as the Chartered Institute of Housing kind of begins and and ends. And the analogy that that I would draw is you take um take gas servicing, like a critical critical role for social landlords. To get gas servicing wrong, you kill people. Quite rightly, it's a regulatory failure, and, and you can get into trouble very very quickly if you get it wrong. Um, um, Please don't ask Hannah and I how to service a boiler, um, because we will give you very bad advice. But we can signpost you to people who who can, like gas safe, you know, who will make sure that, that what you're doing uh, is right and proper. So some of our job here is is awareness raising and signposting. Um, I think your question about kind of procurement and expertise and getting stuff right, actually, I think I, I'm hugely in support of what Duncan said in terms of like an archetype based approach. I think that's part of the answer here, because actually. That aids understanding as well because it's because it is a um, a framework for thinking and analysis which helps people to understand what's in front of them and helps them to understand what the most likely kind of solutions that you can deploy might look like. If everybody starts talking the same language, you know that kind of passes my anything as long as it's the same test. Industry will respond to that. They they understand the frameworks that their customers work to. You know if the housing sector starts to consistently talk. Uh, in, in a kind of language of archetypes and and solutions relative to those archetypes, the, I don't have always a lot of faith in market mechanisms. But in that kind of environment, the market mechanism will do its job, uh, and the providers will start to respond to what their customers are saying and say, "Okay, we can help you." So, you know, this is our this is our approach dealing with a type one property. Here's our approach dealing with a type two property. Come and talk to us. We're five percent cheaper than the other guys. I think that will work. So I'm hugely supportive of, of, of Duncan suggesting an archetype based approach. Yeah, we 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 run. I think there's a real risk of us trying to let the best be the enemy of the good you know we need to take big chunks out of this and then if we have to come back and finish the job later so be it but the scale of the problem is such that we've got to start now with big stuff that we know works yeah i mean i, I obviously i'm not going to disagree with anything my boss has said there and that <laughs> makes that I, is exactly what i was about to say um but i guess some of the challenges i guess what we you know, as housing professionals, people working in the sector, we see this. You know, we see the challenges, we see the kind of failures of procurement. So the general public doesn't see it um, as much. And that's perhaps some of the challenge we have in addressing that. So whether it's the skills, the capacity, the knowledge, the the networks, the signposting that isn't there. You know, I, I think to uh, a really relevant example in Edinburgh, where are the Edinburgh trams. So we're the Edinburgh trams, pretty controversial. Scottish government decided, OK, here's your um, capital funding, but we're walking away. So it goes up to the council. So you had really well-meaning people, really well-meaning, really passionate people were delivering a, a kind of a tram network in Edinburgh for the first time in 50, 60 years, however long it be, who were health and care specialists or education specialists. Not anybody yeah. who have a you know, really well-meaning, um, but weren't contract specialists, didn't know that sector. And what did we see? We saw failure in delivery. We saw um, a huge multiplication of costs and a, a reining in of ultimate tram network. Now we're, we're addressing it now, but it's, it speaks to, I think, uh, 
it highlights, I think, in a way that everybody can understand that you need specialism. You need specialism in across any field. You need to understand how complicated this can be. And it isn't just a job for anyone. You can't. And the point you made, Dan, about if we seek to, and again, we're professional body, we're going to say that, but the consequences of underinvesting in staff and skills and training are are pretty obvious, actually, because what we you think you're saving money, you think you can cut back here and there, but ultimately what we're doing is storing up more expensive problems because we don't have the expertise to meet the challenge. You know, we had this, um, and I say this all the time with the Scottish Government, the Scottish Government published um, a 20-year housing strategy last year, and it's brilliant on so much that actually it talks so much about the, the built environment and housing and the homes we want to build. It talks about breaking the link between wealth uh, and housing. You're like, oh, my, what a vision. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. But it doesn't talk about housing professionals. It does nothing about the people who manage and look after kind of housing stock in Scotland and how integral they are. And we miss that debate and discussion. So whether it's around procurement or any other fact, unless we're going to talk about actually the role that professionals have, professional competence and skills have on delivering net zero, affordability, new development and anything, we're going, to, we're going to fall short. So it's a, it's yeah. a broader point in procurement, but it, I think it, it speaks through to the challenges. It Callum's absolutely right, and just to kind of sort of butt in off the back of that, because it, it, it would be surprising, wouldn't it, if a professional body didn't have a lot to say about professionalism. But you know, when we've done, we, in another bit of the forest, we do a huge amount of work on professional standards. And one of the things we say about standards is actually uh, knowledge and skills is only a small part of it. Actually, most of it is behavioural attitudinal, which is a whole other story, not for today. But when, we, when you get to talking about knowledge and skills, one of the most important things actually is knowing where your knowledge and skills end. It's knowing what you know, and it's also knowing what you don't know, because you do need expertise to do some things right. Uh, and in a, in a kind of flippant phrase, which Callum would never use, but I would try to get away with it, it seems to me that quite a lot of things that go wrong kind of big time, where you see landlords end up in a lot of trouble and people end up in regulatory failure, is that somebody thinks, I mean, how hard can it be? Let's just give it a bash. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that, if you're thinking like that, what you're actually saying is, I don't know what I'm doing here. And that is the point at which you should stop and you should either skill yourself up or you should get advice from somebody else because it almost never ends well. And and that that you know, getting that right in this procurement space is incredibly important because giving it a bash is is yeah. never the answer. So so that that is that is so on on point for the week I had last week when somebody actually said that to me, they transitioned from another industry and essentially what they were saying was, well, they lived in a home. So because I live in a home, I know what to do. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> really, you know, I think that's quite, it's quite, it's quite um, disparaging as well that an entire profession who's been managing houses, you know, the the, the, the management, the tenant management and, and, and the maintenance of houses. So, yeah, just because we live in homes doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean we're all experts. I just wish on this note that I, I know a number of um, of architects and other building professionals who who uh, who upskilled in areas like passive house in the past, and it opened uh, them up to this kind of world of building physics and understanding the, the science of of how to make a building work and what from an energy performance and comfort and indoor air quality perspective and so on, and what can go wrong if you if 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 you get these issues wrong, um, and a number of them have. Uh, migrated into um, expert witness work on on failing buildings, um, and of course, the problem with that usually is that uh, most of the really juicy stories they have, uh, you never get to report on, um, because it's always settled out of court. There's no one's interest for the stuff to uh, to, to to end up, um, you know, uh, going to court. Um, 
but you, the horror stories are, are are chastening. It's 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 building pathologies. Is is the profession really? It is, and it's 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 treating every construction site like a crime scene, perhaps. Um, but um, you know, and it often is the case. Um, but it's and it chimes exactly, Gavin, with what you're talking about. This you know evidence based approach. You know, um, it's just getting people to understand um, that your truth and my truth are not necessarily equal in this particular area there are things such as physics um, and they and 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 they will occur whether you like them to whether you want them to or not you know yeah i'm i'm minded and feel suitably chastened about that how hard can it be because when jeff and i set out and started construct island for a sustainable future a bunch of total muppets who knew nothing about the industry <laughs> 20 odd years ago Oh, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because you need ambition you know, and it's worth trying stuff. But it's also, you know, you, you, you've got to be good at making those judgment calls as well. Uh, but just to come back on that thing that Jeff said, the, the other thing that really that interests me is that um, we would benefit from a kind of mindset and behavioural change in, in housing as well, because actually stuff does go wrong. right? It happens all the time. Stuff goes wrong, even with the best of intentions. Sometimes that's the most powerful learning. Um, and there are sectors, actually the aviation industry is pretty good at this, you know, where when something goes badly wrong, they have a disaster, th there is a culture of kind of what, so the most important thing here is that we all understand exactly what went wrong to a very kind of, very sort of scientific standard in, in the way that Jeff described, and then we make sure everybody understands that and the information is out there, and then we will deal with fault and consequence after that. The most important thing is understanding and learning and dissemination. And at the moment, because of the sort of behavioural, moral, legal framework that we work in in housing, it, it Jeff is right that there is a risk when things go really, really badly wrong that it's it's managed, it's it's dealt with, and then the learning is not distributed. And the learning, I think, is almost most powerful just after you've made quite a big mistake. Certainly through my personal life, you know, moments of growth mostly preceded by moments of personal disaster. And I think and that's probably true in kind of organisational business life as well. And, and we should try to learn from that rather than keep it quiet. Well, I'll have to cajole and poke and prod the people I know and get them to be as as forthcoming as I can without and uh, ending up uh, in 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 legal hot soup. You know, yeah. I, I will I will add one thing though is that I I am of the opinion that there is already a lot of information out there and I think it's worth recognising as well because we do have a lot to learn but a lot of people are doing a lot of good work and they are putting a lot of time into putting this information and making it uh, available to everyone. And it's also a question of being, taking a step of actually finding that information, starting using it rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Because I think we're a bit in that culture of trying to reinvent something because we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're like tech entrepreneurs and we're going to do a new system that's going to do a new thing. Well, actually, if you look, a lot of things are there. I mean, again, from a housing perspective, it's still an industry that is literally thousands of years old. And there are lots of things that we can learn from that as well. And we can keep thinking about new technology as being the only valid thing, but also just come back to the modern times. A lot of people are doing some very good stuff and we should be sharing that information and and using it uh, all together. I, I, I think you're spot on. So the onus is on those of us who, who need the information to be really hungry and going looking for it. Uh, and for those of us who've got it, to be kind of tireless and trying to promote it. There's a really good um, sort of adage from Alistair um, Campbell, uh, Tony Blair's kind of comms director. And he used to say, um, the point in which you're absolutely sick to the back teeth of saying something, the people in the front row might just have begun to think that you might be trying to tell them something. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you have information to disseminate, it's hard yards, but your is your responsibility is to come back time and time and time again. And it's a it's a yeah, that's something we have to do at CIH. And one of the things that CIH is involved in is a UK housing evidence centre, which was expressly set up not to do new research, but to collate existing research and to do a better job of trying to communicate it to an audience. Because actually you're you're right. There is an enormous amount of knowledge out there already about all things housing, but including uh, environmentally efficient housing and retrofit. The amount of it that's well understood, well known, regularly referenced is is the minority share. And there's a responsibility on us, those of us that need it to go out and get it. Um, and it's not fair, but there's also a responsibility of those of us who've got it to, mm. to, to try to broadcast it again and again and again. Um, and Alice Campbell is right. People just don't hear. We think they've heard and they haven't. And you've got to go again and again. I think the thing for me is that currency matters to these things um, and and presenting the information in a way that people uh, are, are likely to pay attention. So stories, stories of, of recent disasters, I think, are actually really important um, because you know, uh, I just find that people are more inclined to, much more inclined to listen to that than they are to um, uh, a wonk, uh, a building physics wonk talking about uh, hydrothermal simulation of, of building fabrics, you know, you lose the will to live, you know. Yeah. Um, we have to empower people to to call out on the bullshit, to be honest, that like we have to give people what I always call the common vocabulary so that everyone is talking in the same way. So that you can actually, you know, everyone can play their little parts, however small or big, in identifying where things are not going the right way and being able to eloquently communicate it so that it actually has an impact. Yeah. All right. So we're running long. We should probably wrap up. Um, guys, do you have anything that you, you'd like to get in before we uh, before we wind up? I just want to very brief, briefly pick up on Alex's point because I think it's really interesting. Around, mm. I mean, he's talking essentially around the power dynamic in the housing system, is it across everywhere, and that's how do you, how do you build a kind of regulatory system? I think you know in the, the social sector, I think we see ourselves quite proudly as, as trying to equalise that power as much as possible, can consult with tenants deeply, um, but that that sense of empowerment doesn't exist equally across the housing system, whether as a as a, a someone who's letting in the private rental sector, as someone who's buying a home, you know, and that kind of that, that certainty of someone who, as we've talked about, someone who's paying for retrofit perhaps, and actually that uncertainty around the supplier uh, and the, the effectiveness of what you're um, actually paying for. So how do we provide a kind of system where there is clear transparency around what your rights and responsibilities, how there are means for kind of enforcement of those rights, accountability in the system. It's a hugely deep question to unpack. Obviously, in Scotland, we're looking at a few couple of ways around um, for the reform regulation of PRS. We're looking at human rights laws being in, in, uh, cultural, economic, social rights, which would in turn give people a, a right as to how we how we deliver on that. It's tricky, but I think that that does get to that. Is, is that power imbalance? Because I think a lot of people feel disempowered by their housing circumstances, the quality of it, the affordability of it, and ultimately the lack of choice doesn't really give them much that they, they feel they can do. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with everything Callum has said. I, I suppose the other thing that I was thinking about is going right back to where we started to make a kind of macro-macro point we were talking about, you know, we're not, is housing high output of gender or not? Is, is there a carbon high output gender or not? And one of the problems here is that these are very, very long-term challenges, and they're not amenable to political cycles or political decision-making. And we were talking how, about how I think 
you know, housing in Scotland and Wales has done quite well across the last 20, 30 years because there's been cross-party, long-term consensus and agreement about where we're trying to get to. Well, this agenda is crying out for that as well, actually. We 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 should be active in demanding of ourselves, of, of the public at large and of our political leaders, that there is at the highest level a kind of long-term agreement, a consensus about where we're trying to get to and what we're trying to do, because these problems are so big that they are not resolved in five-year timeframes. It needs consensus over a long period of time. Uh, and if you don't have that consensus over a long period of time, it, it even kind of infects policy design. So a point of detail that Callum and I were talking about yesterday but, but in advance of the podcast, some of the interventions that the government in England is making is pretty useful, but the timescales, the funding timescales are kind of 18-month long programmes because that's what we want to fund. And landlords are saying, this is great. It's helping us do one, one category of thing, but we've got this other category of stuff that we want to do in their five, seven, 10, 15-year problems. So, you know, for, for me, the, I, I think work like this podcast is incredibly important because we're trying to create a sense of momentum to demand of ourselves and of our political leaders that we have a long-term agreement and consensus about what we're trying to do because these are not problems that lend themselves to electoral cycles. All right. Well, that's a fabulous uh, close. Uh, Jeff, you're not allowed to say anything else. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been really thank interesting. You. And uh, yeah, as as ever, join the ACV, join ACAN, subscribe and advertise in uh, Passivize Plus. Uh, and uh, yeah, presumably join the CIH as well, uh, if yeah. you are a housing professional. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll see you again at uh, another one of the conferences, I'm sure. Um, cool. Thank you very much. And uh, thank thanks you. for listening, everyone.